This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Hello, everybody. I want to welcome all our campuses in Fox Valley, Stevens Point, joining with us. Hi, guys. Nice to not see you again, but see you. My spirit sees you, I'm sure. Uh, hey, would you all stand with me? Um, we always recite the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this is our statement of faith and what we believe here at Celebration Church. When we say, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, at this uh, time in our services, when we take our tithes in our offerings, and uh, during this time of the COVID stuff, which I, I, we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, hallelujah. Uh, yes. It's crazy, it was like almost like a year this week, close to it, I wanna say, right? Somewhere around there, where all of a sudden, we just shut down. We had service and there was like seven of us in here. My father preached to Becky uh, <laughs> in the room. Uh, but hallelujah, we made it through. Uh, and I do wanna thank you guys for your faithfulness during all of this, that you've continued to support us. And um, you know, one of the greatest ways of supporting us is, you know, to if, when you go on, if you can sign up for that recurring giving, um, you say, you keep saying that, I know, because we really believe in it, and it really does help us out. Uh, again, if, if you are a regular uh, giver, or you think of becoming a regular giver, you know, just consider looking at the um, recurring giving. It does uh, really help us. You can go online and do that, or you can do it on the app and simply sign up for recurring giving. Um, but again, because we're not passing out the buckets, uh, the offering plates this morning, if you do have cash or check, you can hand those uh, at the campuses as you walk out. There'll be a, uh, some buckets there to hand out um, or that you can drop the money and ties into. And then if you uh, want to give via text, you can. You can text to 77977. And then uh, that's who you're texting to. And then in the message, you can write, you know, um, the little CCWI so that it knows it's coming to us. And then you put in the dollar amount and you hit send and it works and it's cool. Um, I know my dad loves it. He usually stands up here and walks through it. Um, so I always 
giggle. Like he just he seems like the old guy up there texting on his phone. Um, he's seeing all this, so don't worry. He'll give me uh, grief for all of that. But uh, again, we're just trying to make it as easy as possible uh, for you guys to give during this time. So cool. Well, uh, this morning, as you can tell, you're not seeing uh, my father. Uh, he tried to get here <laughs> and couldn't, but he did send us a uh, little welcome video. So let's go ahead and play that. Good morning, celebration. As uh, most of you know, uh, Deanna and I were in Hawaii, Hawaii, uh, this last week doing a wedding ceremony for a couple in our church, Jason and Melissa Wilkie and their kids. We had a blast. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, and then uh, plans were to come back and be here uh, with you <laughs> this morning. Um, first, our flight got pushed back a day. So instead of coming back on Thursday, on Friday, and then you lose a day heading back across the time zones. Uh, but as we took off on Friday afternoon, we got about 20 minutes into the flight when suddenly the plane banks around and starts heading back to Hawaii where we just took off. The captain said they need to turn back. Nothing to worry about. <laughs> really? If there's nothing to worry about, we'd still be flying, right? So uh, they turned back and uh, had some kind of weird problems with the plane. Uh, and... Uh, and then they were concerned about being heavy on landing. Usually most planes, when they take off, even the plane I used to have, when it's full and loaded, at takeoff is one thing, but then it has to burn off enough fuel and lose enough weight or it's too heavy to land again. A lot of people don't know that. So there was a concern about having burnt off enough fuel to land, but they figured they, they could and said it would be heavy. And uh, we came in landing and emergency vehicles everywhere and everything turned out fine. But then all the dinking around with that plane, and then they finally gave up and put us on another plane, and all the dinking around with that. So by the time we finally took off, all of our connecting flights, we wound up in Los Angeles at some ungodly hour of the night. Uh, there's just no way to get our connections flights back to Green Bay. So our plan was to then uh, come visit Deanna's daughter in Arizona. We said, well, we can't make it back, so we'll just go straight to Arizona. So that's where I'm at right now, in Arizona. And that's why I'm not with you. My apologies. Had every intention of being there. But uh, sometimes things get a little crazy and don't always turn out the way that we had hoped. So I called my guys and said, who has a sermon? <laughs> and uh, uh, Becky said she had something she would love to share. So uh, we're excited about Becky sharing and covering for this morning. Uh, Phil has been doing the campus pastor uh, duties. And now Becky's going to bring the message. She's a great delight. Uh, everybody loves Becky. It's wonderful how God has been using her to be a blessing to this congregation. Anyway, uh, Lord willing, <laughs> no other crazy stuff happens with airplanes. We'll see you next Sunday. In the meanwhile, would you please give a warm greeting this morning to our lovely Becky Schomer. Good morning. Welcome, Stevens Point and Fox Valley, those of you joining us online. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for the very nice introduction. That was sweet. You know, when I got the text saying that Pastor Mark's flight had to turn around and head back to Hawaii, I did have just a moment of concern because I did realize that, of course, most planes don't turn around and go back and land unless there's a problem. But I am an optimist at heart. So I very quickly turned that thought and started thinking, oh, 
I'm gonna chalk this one up to a blessing from the Lord. They get to go back to Hawaii? <laughs> How great! Yeah, it turns out no. No, that really wasn't the case. So, um, but we are delighted that they are safe and sound in Arizona. And um, we just pray that that's a very great time for them. You know, I always tell Pastor Mark that church, church is always great, but it's best when he's here. So we do look forward to getting him back home next, next Sunday to share with us all as well. Um, so last week, you were aware that Pastor Phil was gonna be the substitute. Pastor Mark did a nice job of preparing that for you. And I thought it was so funny when I was listening to the sermon and he talked about the fact like all good substitutes, in case things started to go south, he had a film of the Hoover Dam in the back that they could just plug in if they needed to. Um, but I just want you to know that I'm just a little bit more awkward of a substitute than Pastor Phil. Um, and I have not been here for two weeks either. So um, my quality time, or my quality time, my love language is quality time. So I cannot even tell you what it does to my heart to see all you people here. So if things just start to go south, I just wanna warn you all that more than likely, I might just stand here with a silly grin on my face. <laughs> so good to see you. Hi, Austin. Hi, Zoe. Zoe, who used to be a Zolkowski's, but now is a Weber, because I know Zolkowski's, so I thought that was really a fun connection. Okay, I really do have a message, I promise. <laughs> promise. But if I end up doing that, you just know, I'm, I had a moment or something. I was on break, so you never know. Anyway, um, so I am delighted to be able to share with you all this morning. It is the fifth Sunday of Lent. Now, I don't know about you, but Lent is kind of an interesting season in the church calendar, if you really think about it, because it really does build us up to this great celebration of the good news of Jesus. But this Lenten journey of getting there is intended to, I guess, bring us kind of face to face with our need for Jesus. And sometimes those discoveries can be kind of uncomfortable. Um, if you have been spending any time, if you've taken this Lenten opportunity to do some fasting, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I discover through fasting is truly how weak I am on my own. I can totally be taken out by a Cheeto. I'm not kidding, it's so pathetic. Um, I can handle like, I've given up bread, I've done all these things, but Cheetos, here's how it works for me. I don't, maybe you can relate, maybe not. I'm just true confessions this morning, right? So I could, I, I did not give up Cheetos this year, by the way, this is not a this year story. Um, but I have given up Cheetos in the past and I love Cheetos. Um, I'm not crazy about the orange fingers, but I love Cheetos otherwise. Um, but I will see that bag of Cheetos and I will think to myself, Becky, no. I love Jesus more than I love those Cheetos. I'm not gonna do it, I'm not gonna do it. But I will tell you inevitably someplace in these 40 plus days, I will think to myself, I'm just gonna take one and that's fine because at least I'm not eating the whole bag. And I will do it at least twice where I will take just one. How ridiculous is that? My desires should not be that strong. So I am reminded over and over and over again in this Lenten season, and that's just one silly thing, right? That on my own, I am so powerless. It's almost ridiculous. But these are the kinds of things that we come face to face with as we walk through this Lenten season. And I don't know if you've noticed, but um, our sermons, the messages that we've been giving during this time, a lot of them highlight scriptures that do not highlight the greatest and brightest moments of humanity. Because if we're being real and we wanna understand 
the power of what Jesus did for us. This part of the journey is intended to help us understand how desperately we really need him, how desperately humans from the earliest of times have been in need of, of a savior and of the power that we get because of what he accomplished at the cross. So as I go through the message this morning, I'm just keenly aware of the gravity that it holds in my own heart because I know that um, these messages don't always, they're not, they're not the feel-good messages. Anybody ever notice that? Except that they kind of are because we do know the end of the story, right? And we know how it's gonna play out in the end. There's such sweet victory. But if we will take this season and we will truly embrace the gravity of our need for Christ, when we get to Resurrection Sunday, when we get there two weeks from now, it just makes the celebration all the sweeter when we truly appreciate and kind of raise up our awe factor over our guest of honor. So it is truly an honor to be able to share with you today on this fifth Sunday of Lent. And today we're gonna to take some time in the book of Jeremiah. That's a fun one but I've got some things for you. Um, so I need to give you a little bit of a history lesson. I need to give you some background on Jeremiah so that this makes sense. So I hope that I will be a little bit more engaging than maybe your middle school history teachers, no offense, middle school history teachers. I hope that you are engaging students well. My kids actually have had great history teachers, but if my history teachers are watching, I apologize. Um, anyway, so I do need to give you just a little bit of a history lesson. So Jeremiah was one of the Old Testament prophets. So he was one of the guys that God would use to just give messages to people, okay? <clears throat> and when I say his people, God's people, you need to understand that this was before Jesus. So when I say his people, I'm not talking about us, the church. I am talking about in the Old Testament sense, God's people, who at that time when they would talk about God's people, it was strictly the Jewish people or the, the nation of Israel that they would be talking about. So when we go through this today, it's just important for you to know that, that, that the things that are being said were being said to the Jewish people. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So Jeremiah lived during the end of the reign of the kings of Israel. So to, let me just put this in perspective because a lot of our messages so far have really focused around kind of the wandering Israelites as they've come out of Egypt and all of that. So if you're not real familiar with the history of the Old Testament, here's what's happened. We're gonna be like, Ooh, fast forward in quick order here. So we have definitely gotten past the point where the Israelites have been wandering in the desert. We have gotten past the point where they actually go in and they're able to conquer the promised land. We have gone past King David. We've gone past King Solomon. We have even pushed past the point, and this is where usually some people get sketchy with a little bit of the history, but we have even pushed past the point at which this nation of Israel has divided into two. You see, there was this riff, it's like the original church split, I think, uh, but there was this riff within the nation of Israel and they became two separate kingdoms. One of them kept the name Israel um, and the nation of Israel was led by some really terrible kings. So what ended up happening to them is they eventually got taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. If you remember, not long ago, Pastor Mark preached about Jonah and how he had to go and tell the Ninevites that they needed to repent because God wanted to use them as part of his judgment against the Israelites. Well, that was the Assyrians. Um, so they got used and they took the Israelites out into captivity. 
Now this other kingdom, so when the, when the kingdom divided, the other kingdom went by the name of Judah because that was one of the names of the families that was part of these different, 12 different tribes of Israel. So the nation of Judah actually had a couple of decent kings who were leading them, a few, kind of decent. So you'll notice that they're on the scene just a little bit longer, but at the time that Jeremiah starts to prophesy to the people, uh, things are not going so well. As a matter of fact, the king at the time that Jeremiah starts to prophesy was such a wicked man, he literally sacrificed his own son to one of the um, fake gods in the area. So he sacrificed his son. The people of God were practicing witchcraft. They were also mocking and scorning God's prophets, the people who were coming and speaking on God's behalf. And it was even rumored that some of them were being put to death by God's people. Now, I realize that's kind of a quick synopsis um, of the history, but I want you to understand that Jeremiah spends 30 chapters talking about the plight of Judah and how terrible they are and the judgment that's going to come on them. 30. So if you'd like to read more about it in your spare time, you can just visit the book of Jeremiah, chapters one through 30 would make some really great afternoon reading. If you're interested in, well, I don't know if you would nap through that or not, I'm not sure. Anyway, um, so I just want you to know as we pick it up this morning, we're gonna pick it up at chapter 31. And you'll find out, we're gonna to go to the very end of chapter 31. And it's interesting because Jeremiah has something interesting to say after 30 chapters of talking about how awful the, the people of Judah, they are Israelites, um, how terrible they have been and the judgment that they're coming af- under. And it says this in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now, I need to give you a little bit of background on what the word covenant actually means. In the Old Testament, it's a word that's used pretty often in the Old Testament, and it basically means a contract or an agreement of some sort. But most contracts, if you think about it, are pretty much an exchange of promises. What usually happens is party A agrees to do something, party B agrees to do something, they usually accomplish C, and then they can both go their separate ways, happy with what has happened. So for example, if I were going to be building a new house, I would contract a builder. I would probably go find Phyllis Say, of course, and we would come up with a contract. And in this contract, he would say, here are the things that I'm agreeing to do, the services I'll provide, the cost for those things. And then it would also outline what my part would be, the money that I would pay, the services that I might do as part of it as well. At the end, we would hopefully have this lovely home, we can both walk away from the situation happily divided. But here's the thing about a covenant. A covenant actually takes a contract just one step further because the purpose of a covenant is to create a deeper relationship between the two parties or the two people that are involved. So marriage becomes just a beautiful example of a covenant. Man and woman make a promise to each other that they will love, cherish, and obey for all the days of their life. And in keeping that promise, they really continue to bring their relationship 
into an even richer and deeper place of intimacy. Now, if marriage were treated like a contract, what it would probably look like is woman A decides that she wants to go to grad school. She can get cheaper tuition if she's a married student. So she goes and she finds male B, who agrees to marry her so that she can get the discounted tuition and he even offers to help pay for part of her schooling while she is in. In exchange for that, the woman, when she is done with her grad schooling, agrees to take her increase in salary and purchase a new truck for the man. In addition to that, she promises to walk his dog every day and clean up all the poop in the yard. Now, once she is done with school and she gets her higher paying job and she buys the truck for the man, they both happily agree to go their separate ways. Although I want to assure you that in that kind of an agreement, nobody walks away happy because God did not intend marriage to be a contract, but rather a covenant. But I digress, that could be its own sermon all alone. So anyway, so when God led the people out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. Now remember, the point of the covenant is to establish this relationship, to deepen the relationship with the people. There's actually a couple of different covenants that we read about in the Old Testament. There is one with Noah after the flood. There's one to Abraham, the covenant of circumcision, which we all enjoyed that sermon a few weeks ago. Um, and, um, but that was a covenant um, for the people. There was a covenant that was made with King David that he would always have somebody on the throne. And there is this covenant that God makes through Moses um, as well. So when God led the people out of Egypt, this covenant was made and it, um, it encompasses what we would refer to as the Old Testament law. So it's basically the 10 commandments plus about 600 other rules that the people were expected to keep. And as long as the people, God's people, were keeping their part of the covenant, then their relationship with God would be established that they would have peace in the promised land and, and good relationship with him. But it was 613 rules. And the list that was involved included all kinds of different laws, things about ceremonies, things about rituals, social laws, dietary laws, a whole bunch of different categories. Some really odd, if you wanna talk about some interesting reading, you can get into um, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all kinds of interesting, Exodus has some of those, those interesting laws as well. And you'll discover some really interesting um, expectations that were put on the, the people of, um, of God's people. But what you need to remember again is that covenants were meant to be about relationship. So although God put the law in place through Moses, and there were reasons for all of those, those laws, we're not gonna get into that, that's not the point for today. You need to understand that the other thing that he put in place was the system of sacrifices. Because you see, God knew that those Israelites were not gonna be able to keep 613 different laws and rules. I don't know, we have this game at home. I wish I could remember what it was called. Maybe Krishna remembers, I'm telling the story. But it's this whole game about rules. So when you start the game, everybody gets these cards and it will just say some crazy rule, like um, every time somebody says your name, you need to bark like a dog. So we'll be playing the game and if somebody says, mom, I have to go woof. You know, and so you can just keep doing it the whole day. But then as you're playing the game, you can swap out cards or get an extra rule. And anyway, everybody has to keep following the rules. And if you break one of the rules and somebody catches you, then you're out. Now, typically, if we will play that game, there's six of us in our family, you'll maybe get 10 rules on the table and somebody's out. 
So I'm trying to think about 613 rules. You know, so I appreciate the fact that God realized at the time that he set this up. Now there, again, there were purposes, there were reasons for all of these rules, but he understood from the beginning that it was gonna be important because they were, would inevitably break the covenant. And when covenants are broken, it breaks the relationship. And God was keenly aware that that was gonna happen. So he already, as he put in place all of these 613 different laws, he also put in place the system of sacrifices so that there would be a way or a means for the people to restore their relationship with him because he knew that in their own power, there was no way that anybody can keep 613 laws. So Jeremiah goes on to say, now remember, they said, I'm gonna put in place a new covenant. I'm sure the people were delighted to hear that. I know that I would have been, I'm delighted for them. But he goes on to say now in verse 33, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, the laws of Moses were written on stone tablets. They were something that always existed outside of the people. And because of that, similar to, I already give you my true confession. I can't even handle like not eating a Cheeto, right? So because they were external and they were always dependent on the God's, um, on, the, on the willpower, if you will, of God's people, they were always going to be a challenge um, because their willpower was always going to be limited. However, when it says that God's people broke the covenant, you have to remember that it wasn't because they couldn't keep all those laws. It was because something inside of them was refusing and rebelling to abide by the system of sacrifices and to make their relationship right again with God. So once this relationship was broken, the spiral of sin on the part of the Israelites just spun out of control. You know, it's interesting because I, I, I think it was in Pastor Phil's message last week when he was talking about how easy it is for us to get just kind of critical and think, what's wrong with these people? Why would they do that? And I would think to myself, like, why wouldn't they just go make a silly sacrifice? Why don't they just get things right again? Easy to say, I can't even keep myself from eating a Cheeto, right? Because when it's depending on our power, it's always hard. And here's the thing about broken relationships. Once the relationship is broken, it is so easy for things to begin to spin out of control. I want you to think in your own life about a time when you've maybe been in a relationship with, it could be a spouse, a family member, a good friend, somebody who you've become estranged from because there has been a breakdown in the promises that you held with each other. And I would be willing to bet that more often than not, one, if not both of you have done some really uncharacteristic things in response to that hurt and that breaking of the relationship. And now the people of Israel didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have a guard on them in that regard. So you see when anybody begins to go into those spirals and they're left unchecked, I don't know about you, but to me it's no surprise that they became so entrenched in their own sin and idolatry and so it is with God's people. But the interesting thing is in the middle of this mess, now remember, Jeremiah has spent 30 chapters 
talking about how horrible these people are and the judgment that's gonna be coming on them. So in the middle of that mess, all of a sudden it's kind of like there's this timeout, this quick pause. And he starts to share this good news about the fact that, but I'm gonna make a new covenant. My people, they couldn't keep that old one, but I'm gonna make a new covenant. I'm gonna give them another chance at a restored relationship with him. And this time he says, he promises that he is gonna transform the hearts and the minds of those who come into the covenant with him. So in other words, he is setting them up for the win. That's good news. Because in case you haven't put the pieces together yet, this new covenant that the prophet was talking about is put into place by Jesus. So before we pull away from that old covenant, I do want to remind you that Jesus was a Jew. He spent his 33 years abiding by the old covenant because until he died and became the sacrifice, the new covenant would not come. So you see, just because God has promised that there will be a new covenant, it didn't mean that the old one was bad. I think the old covenant gets kind of a bad rap. I can see why with 613 rules, of course. But in fact, the, the old covenant was actually quite good because without it, we wouldn't understand the system of sacrifices. There wouldn't have been a way made for us to have our relationship restored with God. It's just that we view it in contrast to the new covenant, which we all get to live under. So we look at 613 laws and, you know, they were doing animal sacrifices. Ew, right? But it's so much easier to think that way when we can contrast it with something that's good. It's kind of like trying to tell somebody something good about a washboard when we live in the land of like washing machines, right? I just think, ew, are you kidding me? What can be good about that? But the Old Testament law actually was good and it did serve a purpose. And we're told in the New Testament that the Old Testament law was kind of like a, a guardian of the people. I want you to think of it as kind of like a babysitter of sorts, okay? When your kids are young and when we were young, we would, of course, if our parents wouldn't be there, um, and sometimes as parents we felt like this, but we would need a babysitter, right? We would need somebody who would help keep them safe and would guide them and direct them and all of those things. And we're told in the New Testament that that's exactly what the Old Testament law was meant to be. It was meant to be a teacher. It teaches people about how to grow up. Now, as kids get older, if they're maturing, they should require less of that babysitter and they should be able to move into a stage where it becomes a more relational kind of expression with the babysitter or the parent in those cases, right? If, if you've had grown kids, you've seen this happen. So what I want you to understand from this is, well, number one, the Israelites were not growing up, clearly. They were not doing their part in that. But I want you to understand that the problem was never the covenant the problem was the people and their unwillingness to do their part to match the covenant. So now we're gonna to move to Jesus and I wanna share with you some of the words that he spoke during his final week. It is Passover time and the city is absolutely bustling with people. So Jesus has now spent three years teaching people, okay? And he's been ministering to crowds. So we read in John 12, Verse 20, it says, now there were some Greeks among those. Again, this is happening, sorry, I don't know if I said this, this is happening in the last week of Jesus's life. So after Palm Sunday, before the crucifixion and the arrest, all those things. So now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. 
Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. So what we're seeing in these verses is that it's just very clear. Jesus was known. He was popular. He would draw crowds. He was teaching. He was healing. He was leaving the people amazed everywhere that he went. His life, the compassion that he would show to people, they were good and they were growing and they were coming to this height. And in the height of all of that, Jesus now says these next words, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Seems kind of like an odd statement <laughs> to be making at this point. People are coming to see you. They wanna hear what Jesus has to say. And Jesus says, ooh, the time has come. And unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground, it remains only a single seed. You see, the people understood, they were an agricultural society, so they understood that a kernel of wheat was good. It was good food, it was good nutrition for them. Wheat is good. And the majority of wheat kernels do become food. Um, that is the fate of most of them. But just as a seed will never become a plant unless it dies and it's buried, Jesus was telling his disciples here in a very indirect way that his death and his burial were gonna also be very necessary in order for this new covenant to be ushered in. You know, it seems like this betrayal to his life and ministry because they were so good. But Jesus was letting them know that his death was gonna produce even greater rewards than his life. That's kind of unexpected, wouldn't you say? You know, and I think God works that way with us as well. We look at our lives and it's interesting because we look at the stuff of our lives and some of it we think is kind of yucky and some of it we think is actually pretty good. Um, but I love that Jesus always reminds us that God doesn't look at it all the same way. So I don't even know if my good stuff is good or if my bad stuff is good or, or what it is. But the point that he's making is when we'll take that and we'll lay that down, um, we can submit ourselves and he invites us towards something. So he goes on to say in verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now, I gotta tell you, when I read this the first time, I was just confused. So I'm like, love is good, hate is bad. We grew up, we weren't allowed to say hate. We would tell our kids it was the H word. Nobody ever used it in our house. Um, but if I'm reading this right, actually the, the love is, loving their life is bad, because they'll lose it. And hating their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So I had to dig into this one a little bit so I could understand it. Um, so here's the deal. I mean, you might remember that Jesus at one point talks about how when we hold hatred in our heart, it's the same thing as committing murder, okay? So hatred does carry this idea of death with it. I want to assure you, however, Jesus was not saying, go kill your life. That's not the message, my friends. It was that anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So in other words, 
We should be willing to take whatever it is that's in this life. And just like that kernel needed to be planted in the ground, if we wanna come to Jesus, if we wanna be a part of that covenant, then we need to be willing to take it and lay it down and plant it in who he is as well. And when we will do that, that is the beginning steps of covenant with Jesus. And he goes on to say that whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. You know, when we take that step, when we decide that we're gonna lay down whatever it's that we have, that we're willing to surrender it. If it's something good, God may want you to surrender it. He might want you to just plant it at the feet of Jesus. Maybe not. Those things that are unhealthy and are holding you back, I can assure you he wants you to plant those. But like I said, it's often unexpected and unknown. So what Jesus is asking of us is that willingness to just take whatever it is that we have, this very life, and be willing to lay it down, to plant it in him, to die to ourselves in that way. And what he promises when we do that is that he will write his law in our hearts and our minds. Because at that moment, and because Jesus has now um, accomplished what he came to do, the Holy Spirit comes and it gives us that power to be able to live in this covenant relationship with Jesus. And that's the beauty of the new covenant that Jesus established when he came and he gave his life. So in a few moments, we're gonna be taking communion. You know, and I love it because it really clearly is that symbol of the new covenant. We say it actually before we partake of the, the wine together. So I'm gonna invite our musicians to come back at this time. But that communion that we take together, it is the symbol of the new covenant that Jesus ushered in when he became that ultimate sacrifice that was required in the old covenant. But the Bible tells us that before we take communion, we need to examine our hearts. So I want you to take a moment this morning and ask yourself these questions. Have you accepted the offer of the new covenant? Have you put to death your own desires, your sins, the part that you wanna play for yourself and entrusted them to Jesus? Because you can today, you can begin an incredible relationship with him. But maybe you've already done that. Maybe you've already come into your relationship with Jesus. But this morning, it's a great time to ask yourself, How's it going? See, the promise of this new covenant had to be a welcome word, but it was some time before it came to pass. So God's people, the nation of Judah, they did get taken into captivity. They did suffer the consequences of their sinfulness. But just because they had to go through tough times, that didn't mean that God had given up on them. He doesn't give up on any of us. So if things are rough between you and God, maybe this would be a good moment to get things back on track before they spiral out of control. 
Or maybe for you, there's a human covenant that's been broken and it's become an area of struggle in your life. Whatever your need is this morning, the needs of your heart, let's turn it over to prayer. Heavenly Father, before we partake of the bread and the cup this morning, in obedience to your word, we do pause now and we examine ourselves. God, if we've sinned against you in thought or word or deed, by what we've done or by what we have left undone, if we have not loved you with our whole heart, if we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, for the sake of your son, Jesus, who gave himself as that sacrifice for our sins, have mercy on us and forgive us all of our sins. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of your Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. So we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name.